0: Lamentations chapter one. Science tells us that tears resulting from sadness, anger, fear, or joy may be, uh, in fact, whether science wants to admit this or not, but God's way of removing chemicals built up by stress from your body. Dr. William Fry II of Psychiatry Research Laboratories at the St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, believes that this is the case. Studies uh, that he's done uh, indicate that women cry five times as often as men, (laughs) and that 85% of the women and 73% of the men thought that crying made them feel better. Most common reason for crying is sadness, followed in rank by happiness, anger, sympathy, anxiety, and fear. Tears, isn't it interesting that Jesus shed tears, that God became a man and God cried. That's really something. Um, Now, um, I'm not typically really a crier. Uh, I've not done a lot of crying as an adult male And I just gotta admit it, I've never been really comfortable when men cry around me. Um, I I, I have to admit there's preachers out there that are really talented ministers and preachers. I just can't watch them when they cry. And and I love it, I mean, I think, wow, that's great. And you know, I'm not criticizing crying men because guess what, Jesus was a crying man. Uh, I sometimes wish that I had it in me to Uh, maybe appreciate that more than I actually do. Uh, Or or maybe even, you know, uh, have something in me. I wonder, Lord, is there something wrong with me? Because, man, it takes uh, quite a bit to get me to tear up a little bit. And, and, And yet, you know, Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem, but Jeremiah, he was called the weeping prophet. And before we go, well, what a wimp, Jeremiah. Well, you gotta remember the days he lived, they were pretty horrific. There was much to cry about. But not only that, Jesus and Jeremiah uh, really uh, are comparable in so many ways. Not that you know Jesus uh, is any—you know—he's by far greater than any man that ever lived. But in the Old Testament, there are examples and illustrations of Jesus. You know, Joseph is a type or picture of Jesus, uh, and you can—we talked about that a month or so ago of the picture of Joseph and how he God sent him to you know, the father sent him to seek and save his brothers and his brothers despised and rejected him and beat him. And like, like we talked about how Joseph is his picture. But Jeremiah the prophet, remember in Matthew, when Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And one of the people they thought Jesus was, was Jeremiah the prophet. Um, what was Jeremiah's most um, noteworthy personal characteristic or trait? Well, was he sitting, sitting around weeping? In fact, it, it, just like Jesus, remember, because when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he said, oh, Jerusalem of Jerusalem, if you'd only known in this thy day. What, what day? That was that day that Jerusalem saw him riding into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. He wept over Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus wept when Lazarus was in the tomb and there's, there's examples, but isn't it interesting where Jesus was riding on the Mount of Olives down the hill on a colt of a donkey when he was weeping over Jerusalem And most scholarship agrees that Lamentations is Jeremiah weeping over Jerusalem on that same mountain only six centuries earlier. Here's Jeremiah sitting on the Mount of Olives looking over. Now, you remember that view is that classic view of Jerusalem you know, where you see the Dome of the Rock Mosque or shrine, I should really call it, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and where the Temple Mount used to be. Um, The Mount is still there, but the Temple's no longer there, of course. it's overrun by Gentiles, just like the Bible said it would be. But Jeremiah had a view during this time. Remember, we, on Sunday, we kind of started an intro to Jeremiah's book on Lamentations here. And we learned that Jeremiah was writing this at that key time when Gedaliah was killed by the Ammonites. Babylon had already you know, conquered Jerusalem after their third wave. So this is after 586 B.C. And there's Jeremiah and a tiny group of Jews that are left, and Gedaliah's dead, uh, you know, and they've just got a tiny remnant, and they're all saying, what are we going to do now? The Babylonians are going to kill us, the leftovers of us. And they did not listen to Jeremiah, and they decided to go down to Egypt. But before they went to Egypt, Jeremiah was able to write down, with probably the help of Baruch the scribe, the book of Lamentations. And it's really quite um, a dirge, really. In fact, if you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, they don't call it lamentations. They call it, uh, well, the, the, the word in the Greek is the word that's used for dirge. Dirge? Yeah, this is the dirge of Jeremiah. <laughs> uh, you say, well, man, that's, it's kind of a de- depressing poem. In fact, the book of Lamentations is a book of poems, five poems. And there's some interesting things about this. Each chapter, you'll notice that most of the chapters out of the five have 22 verses in them. Chapters one uh, and chapter two has uh, 22. Chapter three has 66. Chapter four has 22. And chapter five has 22. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, remember the verses and chapters came in later, uh, centuries after the Bible was put together. Do you know that, right? But why does that matter then? Well, because the the chapter and verse people centuries later saw that the book of Lamentations had natural divisions in it already. They didn't need to divide it up. And it was already marked and ordered, unlike much of the Bible. Do you remember in the Psalms, we, we came across what we called the acrostics. Or the acrostic psalms. What are the acrostic psalms? Well, they're psalms that were um, marked with letters of the alphabet. Where does the word alphabet come from? It comes from the Hebrew alphabet. That's uh, the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph and Bet. Um, so that's where that word alef, bet, or alef, al- alphabet came from. Now, that's a Hebrew thing. Um, now, what's interesting is the Hebrew alphabet has, guess how many letters in it? Anybody want to take a stab? 22. Yeah, we just kind of gave you a sneak preview here. Uh, so, so this acrostic means that each verse starts with a, a consecutive letter of the alphabet, the alphabet, okay? And well, you say, but bro, what about chapter 3? It's totally messed up. Not really. Chapter 3 has 66. Anybody want to take a guess at what Jeremiah does with that one? Does he go through the alphabet three times? No. He goes through the alphabet uh, every three three letters a time. A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, D, D. Uh, why, what's he doing? Is he just messing with our minds, that Jeremiah? No, uh, there's, the funny thing is, we're not exactly sure why the, why the Bible authors um, did this. Now, Again, this is something we totally miss in the English translation of the Hebrew Bible. We, we miss the acrostic altogether because our al- alphabet is totally different and uh, we have different numbers of letters. And uh, so we miss it altogether. Why did you know, the Psalms do that? By the way, Psalm you know, 119 uh, is one of those Psalms that does that kind of interestingly. Uh, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible is divided up into the uh, sections uh, of the Hebrew alphabet, you know, it starts with the little first eight verses of Aleph, and then it goes to uh, the next eight verses of Bet, and Gimel, and Dalet, and He, and Vav, and it just keeps going through all the way to the 22, uh, uh, you know, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But also some of the Psalms are acrostic in the same way that Lamentations is, A, B, C, D, if you would, in the English. Um, and it just kind of helps Organized. Now, it's not just for organization. Most scholars believe the reason that Jeremiah did this with Lamentations, this is an interesting one, is for memorization purposes. They would teach their people, the Jews would memorize the books of the Hebrew Bible. That was one of their main goals. They would sit around and memorize. That's something that our culture has largely lost. And we don't think we can memorize stuff anymore. Um, I do wonder if we've lost that capability. Um, if you've been around Athey Creek for a long time, I fought that battle for years when it came to our worship. Uh, because in the early days of Athey Creek, like I do all the old songs here on Wednesday night when I'm doing the old songs, and uh, they're a little more simple uh, than some of the newer songs nowadays. But um, in the old days, people were saying, Brett, put the, wall, the words up on the wall. And I would say, no. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I'm opposed to words on the wall. Uh, never really was. And if people think that, they're wrong. Um, but I was trying something to really urge the congregation to memorize, uh, because many of the songs were right out of Scripture. Tonight, we did two of them that are word for word, right out of the Bible. Wait, two, yeah, two of them tonight. Uh, um, and and uh, and the reason that's cool is you, you're getting Scripture memorized by learning these songs. Um And so what we started doing is getting more and more people saying, we can't, you know, we can't memorize the songs. And what about new people and, you know, this and that. And so finally I I just caved in and realized we're just dumb and we're not gonna memorize anything anymore. (laughs) Um, No, no, I'm just kidding. But um, plus our songs have gotten more complicated, which is okay. The old hymns were complicated and hard to remember, uh, but they're worth singing, that's for sure. Uh, And so, you know, that's why the words on the wall can be very helpful. But at the same time, don't check your brain in and say, oh, I just can't memorize. I, I hear people say that. Can I, can I say, just like, like I'm getting off track here and this is why we're probably gonna be really late tonight. But uh, um, have you ever noticed that Athey Creek, our worship leaders and you know, whether there are high school kids up here, which we have a lot of younger people leading worship, which I love that up here, um, uh, or it's our drummers or our bass player. Have you ever noticed you'll never see music stands up here with words on them? Um, well, Brett, how do they do that? They're just really talented. They're really like Einsteins running around. No, they work hard at it. Um, I feel like worship leaders with music stands and uh, as they're doing a song and you know, I feel like that is um, distracting uh, for a worship leader to do that. That's just my own personal thing. And, and it's, it's not that hard if you actually apply yourself to just memorize the songs. Uh, whether you're, and, and by the way, for musicians, that's one of the eighty Creek rules. Like, you know, now, once in a while, you'll see a music stand if somebody's doing something up here uh, that's like classical violin which like, like sometimes we'll do that like at Christmas Eve or if somebody's doing something that's like really intense music, of course, uh, music is, uh, I don't know how to read music. Like I don't even know a note of music. People say, what chord were you playing on? I don't know. I don't even know what key that was. Like I seriously don't know anything about music theory. Uh, so music means nothing to me. I wished it did, but but uh, but. It's different on that, but when it comes to leading worship songs, that's that's one of the things I love about our worship teams. They're they're willing. Uh, most of our worship people that come up here are volunteers. You know, they're they're not all paid musicians. You know, tons of volunteers every weekend that come and lead worship here at AC, and um, and uh, they memorize. They do hard work, memorize their notes and the songs and the lyrics, uh, and that's something that I think is really, really cool. Um, I hope we can all work at that with the Bible, with scripture memory. If there's anything worth memorizing, scripture is it, songs help. But as it turns out, the alphabet does too. I think that's what Jeremiah was doing with Lamentations. He was making these acrostic poems of dirges um, so that people could memorize the book of Lamentations. Brett, of all the books of the Bible, the one I least want to memorize is Lamentations. What about Philippians? Or maybe, you know, 3rd uh, John. That's a good one to memorize, because it's the short one. <laughs> um, man, uh, there was a little kid in our church that walked up to me and just started speaking the book of Ephesians. Had the whole book of Ephesians memorized. Little kid. It's sickening. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, now, now let, me, let me push back a little bit though, mom don't be a Bible verse memorization Nazi. Uh, I know that sounds horrible, but I'm trying to make it sound horrible because there's. I, I watched this as a children's pastor for years. There were some moms that were almost insane, like my child shall memorize Bible verses and, and you know made them memorize scripture. And even with a little treat or a snack or something as a mem- uh, reward, if that's the only reason they're doing it. And, and as an old children's pastor of many years, I watched a lot of kids learn to really hate the Bible because their mom was making them memorize it so much. I think mom and dad, maybe the best thing to do is give your kids a real love for the Bible first. Make sure your kids love the Bible. Um, I think instead of cramming memory verses down their throat, which it's okay to have memorization to a degree, but make it fun, first of all. And then also um, uh, don't require them to memorize the whole Bible unless your child really has a propensity for that and loves that and kind of is given to giftedness in that. That's great. But be careful about force feeding them because that, that, that'll backfire on you when they get older. I've seen it too many times. Give them a love for the Bible stories. Give them a love for what God's word actually says so that when they get older, they'll, they'll study it with a real passion. And then memorization has meaning to them more so. Um, well, all that to say, this acrostic um, is five poems, five chapters. Um, and each one kind of has its own theme. Uh, all acrostic, all meant to be memorized. And it all means that you and I should say, why would God want the book of Lamentations memorized? That's a great question to kind of ask ourselves because um, of all the books of the Bible, this one has the you know, earmarks of memorization with every single verse being marked with a order of the letter of the alphabet. What does that mean to you and me and why should we look at it? Well. The Lamentation book is important, and we'll see why tonight. Dr. Alexander White, one of the great expositors of the word from several generations ago, um, he said this about the book of Lamentations. He said, there is nothing like the Lamentations of Jeremiah in the whole world. There have been plenty of sorrow in every age and in every land, but such another preacher and an author with such a heart for sorrow has never again been born. Dante comes next to Jeremiah. And we know that Jeremiah was the great exile's favorite prophet. Isn't that interesting for you guys that read Dante, you know, it's not like peppy reading. Um, But Jeremiah gets, you know, according to Dr. Alexander White is the top when it comes to uh, authors and mourning and sorrow, Um, but it's a powerful, powerful book. Um, And we read it because we wanna learn from history You've heard me say it a million times, but it's true. If there's one thing we've learned from history, is we've learned nothing from history. I was reading an interesting thing several years back, um, talking about you know radical jihadist Islam, and this author was trying to make a point that we haven't learned from history when, when it comes to Islam around the world, and why we're still wrestling with ISIS and uh, some of these you know uh, Al Qaeda and some of these. Why do they just keep raising their heads and when we think we've destroyed them, and what's going on? Well, this author makes argument. we've learned nothing from history. And this, this author takes great pains to go back to the United States' first dealings with Muslims and radical Muslims, particularly. Um, and did you know it was way back with our third president, Thomas Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson was the first president of the United States that had to deal with this. And like the, um, you know, the early 1800s, like 1805, they, they they've, they've had the first Barbary Pirate War. Uh, the Barbary Wars, the first one was uh, in 1805, if I remember right. But um, it's interesting because I've heard uh, liberals try to explain that Thomas Jefferson was actually a Muslim. And why did they say this? They say it because he owned a Koran in his library and it was marked up and yellowed and highlighted and notes were taken on it. Um, so they figured, he hmm, must be a Muslim. No, the reason Thomas Jefferson studied the Koran is because it was his biggest enemy during his presidency. And he was trying to get into the mind of the Muslim and why they did what they did. So there in the you know Mediterranean Sea, uh, what, what is today Libya, um, but in those days it was different you know, uh Lands. But these pirates came from the shores and were basically stopping all shipping and marauding and pirating all the ships of the British to the United States and all this stuff. So because of that, Thomas Jefferson wrote extensively about the Islamic beliefs and what these Mujahideen pirates, the Barbary pirates as they're called, were what they were all about. And this author makes the argument that had we actually followed through and understood what Thomas Jefferson found out and learned about the the Muslim fundamentalist, um, we, would, we would understand far more than we do. It seems like we have to relearn every time a, a, a fundamentalist Muslim uprising comes up in the world. We have to relearn what was already been through back in 1805 and then the second Barbary War in 1807. And, and we just continue to forget and not learn anything. And this author was making a valid point that we just, we don't learn from history. Um, by the way, one of the great problems is the rewriting of history. You know, so that we don't even, not only do we not know what they did, uh, we have the wrong information a lot of times now. Uh, history, so-called, uh, has become sort of propagandized. That's what I love about the Bible. Uh, the Bible that we hold in our hands is the same Bible that they had hundreds and even thousands of years ago. So you and I get to, get to read ancient history here and, and learn from Jeremiah and learn from Lamentations. That's the point, Um, The Jews in Jerusalem being wiped out is a picture for you and me to learn from. So that's kind of the point here in this passage of Lamentations is to try to hear the heart of the Lord, hear the heart of Jeremiah and see what happened to the people. So in this first chapter, um, we basically see, and if you could give sort of a title to this poem, poem number one out of the five, chapter one, 22 verses. If you gave a title to this chapter, you might say Jerusalem's Isolation. Jerusalem's isolation, um, and we we see this chapter kind of divided into two. We see Jeremiah lament in the first half in verses one through eleven, and then we see um, you know Jerusalem's plea for mercy in verses twelve to twenty-two. So it's kind of split in half, almost. Uh, Jerusalem laments, and then the second half of chapter one, Jerusalem pleads for mercy, pleading for mercy. So we start off with Jerusalem's isolation, chapter one, verse one. How doth the city sit uh, solitary that was full of people? How is she become a widow that she was great among the nations and princes among the provinces? How is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night and her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers She hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because... None come to the solemn feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Man, heavy, 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 right out of the gate. Bitterness, sighing, you know, uh, no rest. Now, one of the things I want you to be thinking about in the back of your mind, because when I finish chapter, I'm hoping to get through chapter two tonight. If we get to the end of chapter two, one of the things I'm gonna do I'm gonna show you something where almost everything in this chapter that Jeremiah says, here's what happened and here's what happened and that happened. We just read a list of things, finding no rest, persecutors overtook her, all her friends bailed on her, all her lovers. Who were Jerusalem's lovers, by the way? Anybody? What? It was the false gods, remember? God always compared Baal and Ashtoreth and all these gods and goddesses as their false lovers or the lovers of, remember the prostituting that, that the Jews were, it's that, that uh, illustration. So when it says, you know, where are the lovers? It's like these idols didn't come to her aid uh, when things went bad. Um, but she's mourning and in bitterness. I want you to note all these things because almost every single one of these things, God warned the Jews, of course by Jeremiah, the prophet in Jeremiah, the book. But here in Lamentations, there's a list of all these things, but long before Jeremiah was even born, God warned them about pretty much every single one of these repercussions. Everything that is mentioned here, and I'll I'll show you that, but think if you will, as we go through this, where in the Bible did God warn the Jews about all this stuff? We'll, We'll be thinking about that, and then we'll see if you're correct. Uh, at the end of our study. So, you know, we see here that um, Judah has gone into captivity because of her affliction. Um, she finds no rest and, and total desolation. Um, one of the things that's sad is, you know, the, the city was once celebratory with the feast and the festivals and all that. The You know, the people, Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, all the different things, the Day of Atonement, gone. It's just sitting there with smoke billowing as it just sits in rubble nobody's celebrating. And Jeremiah is painting this very depressing picture. Um, But then he starts talking about what their sin caused. And we looked at that on Sunday, all the things, or at least some of the things I should say, that, uh, that were the repercussions of her sin. The first one we looked at on Sunday was sin leads to captivity. Verse five, her adversaries are the chief. You know, they're in charge of her. Her enemies prosper for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. So we saw that, Um, you know, that they're they're in in control, under control of the Babylonians and they're now in captivity. And we learned on Sunday in this past several weeks in the book of Jeremiah that sin always leads you to bondage. Um, By the way, one of the things you'll see here too is what Jerusalem sowed that is also what they end up reaping. You'll see that in this narrative as well. The reaping and sowing element of this. You remember Galatians, of course, chapter six, verse seven, this is whatsoever, man, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man reaps, that will he also sow. It's one of those things you can't get away from, right? You know, in the Bible, even though people think they're gonna get away with it, the Jews are getting, they're reaping what they've sowed. Uh, and that's part of the deal. its It's a bummer when you get caught in your own Devices. It, it just adds to your understanding of how really stupid you tend to be or feel. I'm reminded of uh, a guy uh, back in the day. He was the guy, Sir, Sir uh, Robert Watson Watt. He was a guy who um, invented radar for police work, like uh, to, to measure people's speed. Um, And um, several years after inventing it, Sir Robert Watson Watt was arrested in Canada for speeding. Uh, He'd been caught in a radar trap. And and, uh, while he was in prison, he wrote this poem. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of his radar plot. And this with others I could mention, a victim of his own invention. (laughs) it's, it's, It's funny how, you know, sometimes the things we come up with We don't really realize they're the very things that trap us and nail us. And that's true with sin. And that's one of the things we see here, Jeremiah bringing out in all this. So you got verse five, you know, sin leading to captivity. The second thing is we saw sin destroys beauty, verse six. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty has departed, her princes are become like hearts or deer that find no pasture, and they're gone without strength before the pursuer. The hunters look after them, but they can't run anymore because they're little stick deer because they're skeletons, because they're, they're, they're skinny. And then uh, they've gone without strength. They're in verse six, the last part. So sin destroys beauty, sin weakens us, like we saw with Samson, verse seven. Uh, we see sin makes people laugh at you. Uh, verse seven, Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction of her miseries, all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock her Sabbaths. They made fun of her religious part. Look at the Sabbath keeping Jews. Now they don't even have anything. They're just become a laughing stock. And that's what happens also. Uh, Then we saw sin sin brings about nakedness in verse 8. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. Therefore she has removed all that honoreth her, despiseth her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Then number 6, we saw sin brings about filthiness. Verse 9, her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction." Or the enemy hath magnified himself. So one of the things that our sin does, You know that I didn't list on Sunday, is the enemy magnifying himself in the midst of our sin. It's almost like there's a celebration. When you fail in sin, the enemy's over there with his little you know, henchman going, yes, magnifying himself. Uh, it's really sad. But also sin takes away the things we love. Verse 10, the adversary hath spread out his hand upon her, pleasant things. For she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. All her people sigh and they seek bread, which was number eight on our list. Sin leads us hungry. They have given their pleasant things for meat to re- relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become Vile. So we saw these eight things. I'm going to show you a ninth thing that we left out. You Wednesday nighters get a bonus uh, one. You're like, yay, another depressing thing that sin does. Um, But that's coming here a little later. Now, the second half of this is Jerusalem's plea for mercy, verses 12 through 22. It says in verse 12, it is nothing to you, all ye that pass by. Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Now, this is Jeremiah writing as if he's Jerusalem and the Jews himself, not just Jeremiah personally. So he's kind of represented like Jerusalem saying these things. And one of the things I'd like you to mark is um, that Jeremiah is acknowledging the day of the Lord's fierce anger. And I I just have to point this out. I know that sometimes I feel like I'm kicking a dead horse on this one. Where did we get that phrase, kicking a dead horse? That's really horrible. Uh, uh, But but that's what it feels like when we say stuff over and over again. But the reason I think I harp on this one is I marvel at how many churches and pastors will not talk about the Lord's fierce anger or his wrath or his justice or judgment or righteousness or holiness. It's really amazing how the Americanized or really the world gospel now has very little to do with judgment and wrath and more to do with you know, yourself making you happy and you, 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 and, and really uh, we gotta remember what we are, we're, we're sinners deserving death and hell. And people are leaving that out. There's entire ministries, they'll never talk about wrath and judgment or the Lord's fierce anger. Well, that's just the Old Testament. Listen, the Lord is the same today, yesterday and forever. The Lord never changes. That's something you have to realize. The God of the Old Testament is still alive and well. And as it turns out, if you read your Bible in the book of Revelation and kind of realize the way the end is gonna work out for the world, it's gonna include his fierce anger. You know, this little thing that Jeremiah went through is like a child's play moment compared to what's gonna happen in the tribulation period that's coming. Read Revelation 6 through 19. Now you say, Brett, I went to a church and my pastor told me that Revelation 6 through 19 is describing You know, AD 70 when Jerusalem fell. Um, And here's all you got to do is when you read it, ask yourself is this talking about a city or is this talking about a global situation? And it's a no brainer. If you read honestly Revelation 6 or 19, it's not about a city and the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. It's about the, the earth over all the earth. There's huge things that are gonna happen. There's one story in the book of Revelation that talks about how there's gonna be angels flying around in the world and the world's gonna be confounded. Um, this is not Jerusalem when the Bible says a huge angel is coming. Remember the huge angel? He's gonna put one foot down on the continent and one foot down in the ocean. And I'm not talking about at the beach, one foot in the water, one on the sand. It's this massive mondo angel that's gonna like Mediterranean, somewhere in Jordan or Iraq. Like he's this huge angel, you know? Um, It's funny how myopic we can tend to be about our own little thing and we can come up with our own little narrative, but read the tribulation period, Revelation 6 through 19. It's a global situation. And you'll also recognize modern things with the apostle John trying to explain them. Uh, Stuff that the Romans didn't have. What, what is it when John talks like, like he says stuff that cracks me up. There were giant locusts with flames coming out of our nostrils with faces of men and they had hair of women. And, well, what is he talking about? What did the Romans have that looked like a giant locust with flame coming out her nostrils and faces of men inside the eyeballs? The Romans didn't have that weapon, uh, we do. That's called an Apache helicopter. I mean, like when you think about what John's trying to say, maybe, I'm not saying for sure, but maybe John was talking about modern weaponry. Um, and when you read it, you kind of go, wow, this is not the Romans conquering you know, Jerusalem in AD 70. And by the way, they'll do that also, the same people that are preterists or um, even amillennial believers, um, they'll say that Matthew 24 is also all about Romans taking Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Again, I would argue that even Matthew 24, Jesus talks enough about global things. It's not just a city that we're talking about here. Um, And that's just one argument as to why uh, we think we're talking more about the last days, the end of the world. But the fierce anger is still part of God's future plan. And that should be known. If God is gonna pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world, shouldn't we talk about that so that people say, well, what, what do I need to do to avoid that? Um, and it's good news. The, all you need to do is accept Christ and be saved and forgiven of your sins. And then you won't be held uh, to that wrath. That's why First Thessalonians 5 says, the Lord has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. So very important. I hope you're not duped by some of these guys that are trying to teach that, oh, the Lord doesn't, the wrath is not really, we're just gonna talk about fun, happy things. Um, and uh, man, we're gonna have happy people all the way to hell if we're not careful. Um, God forbid, God forbid. Well, the Lord says, you know, through Jeremiah that the people were saying, man, we've been afflicted in the day of the fierce anger. I've got that marked, because that's part of God's plan. Verse 13, from above hath he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound in his hand. They are wreathed and come upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fall. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands from whom I am not able to rise up. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in the winepress. For these things I weep, mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water. Remember Jeremiah said, my eyes are like a fountain. Remember that? This is the weeping prophet. That's where he gets that name. So he says, my eyes, verse 16, they run down with water because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath uh, commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. Pause there now, you say, but that's, why does Jeremiah say this? Jerusalem being like a menstruous woman? We get all caught up in what he's saying, but back in Bible times, they weren't all weirded out about stuff like this, but it was just a fact. Do you remember um, the way that they dealt with um, the issue of the menstruating woman in the book of uh, Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 15, verses uh, 19 and 20 tells us that it was kind of a bad deal. It wasn't like, you know, today, uh, but if a woman was going through that time, she would be excluded from everything. She would have to go outside of the camp. Um, (laughs) And and why did they do that? Um, well, it had to do with the ceremonial being clean versus unclean. And the, the interesting thing is that the woman was excluded from worship and everything good, you know. So, um, so really that's the idiom that is being used here by Jeremiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That it's basically saying being an outcast and being left alone with no one there to help. Um, and, and it's just supposed to be kind of a, a mark of that desperation and sadness. Um, so that's really what's being said here. Isolation, uh, alone, untouchable, uh, no one's there to touch or comfort because of that condition. Verse 18, the Lord is righteous for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you all people and behold my sorrow, my virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. Who are the lovers of Jerusalem? The idols and the false gods, yes. They deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. (laughs) Mine heart is turned within me. For I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth at home there is uh, as death. Um. In our eight things we looked at on Sunday of the things sin does to us, you wanna add a number nine right here? This will finish your list for chapter one. Number nine, sin leaves us troubled in our hearts. Your hearts are troubled when you sin. Sin leaves you depressed and troubled. This verse 20 makes it clear. Oh Lord, I am in distress, my bowels. See, we we don't use that term anymore. It's like my intestines. No, we say my heart. It sounds so much better. My heart. This does. I feel bad in my heart. Um, but that's what he's saying. But it is true. You know, that's that gut feeling that you get, that sickened gut feeling. The, the Bible's actually really accurate on this. When it says, Behold, I am in distress, my bowels are troubled, and mine heart is turned within me. That's a good description of what sin does. We think it's so great, but sin leaves your heart troubled. And uh, I think that your heart, the lev in the Hebrew there, is often linked to your soul. Um, now I'm not saying all you know trouble psych- psychologically uh, is because of sin, I'm not saying all of it is, but I do think that that's an underrated diagnosis where people have trouble in their soul, psyche, um, and we have this disorder and that disorder and the other disorder and we label them, but we haven't got to the issue of that sin is that which brought us to that troubled dysfunction. Sin leads to heart troubles. Um, not, it's not always the reason why people have trouble with their heart, their soul, their psyche, their gut, but it, but it can be because of sin. You show me a person who just goes on a sin rampage and does a bunch of stuff, they're gonna have a trouble also in their heart and their psyche, and they're gonna try to fix it. And here's what our culture does. I'm just gonna give you kind of the ugly version. A person grows up, just keeps doing all kinds of sinful things, looking at pornography and then having sexual sin, just unchecked and just keeps doing that and then becomes kind of a jerk and treats people badly all the time and then you know, abuses people with his, and on and on. This person is living in sin and, and then what happens? He's just troubled in his soul so he goes into counseling and they say, oh, you need to be leveled off. So they give him medication that levels off his emotional bandwidth that only allows him to do what? There's no repentance, there's no you know, conviction of sin. I think that that can be, not always, but it can be sometimes the scenario that we see in our current world and the way we diagnose troubled souls. And we wonder why you know, we have so many people in prisons today and we're not really diagnosing the real issue. Um, it's not because they have this victimization of disorder, it's because they've taken up sin. And the more they take up sin, the more troubled their soul's gonna be. They need like a uh, spiritual uh, rem- remedy and not um, a medical one. Well, that's the ninth thing on our list. Verse 21 They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. And it's interesting, this prayer would be answered. The Lord would do it to all the other enemies round about Jerusalem and Israel. The Lord would pay pay out. And we we looked at that a few weeks ago, uh, talking about the, the judging of the other nations. So chapter one, we see this dirge poem number one, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right through the acrostic. Um, And it's really, um, you know, Jerusalem's desolation. But chapter two speaks of God's punishment of Israel's sin. That's chapter two, how God punishes Israel's sin. Now, before we read this, does God punish us punitively for our sins? The answer is no. Does he punish us correctively? Yes, uh, there is a difference. Whom the Lord loves, he does what? Chastens, according to the book of Hebrews. And the word chasten, just picture spanking. Whom the Lord loves, he spanks. Um, and why does he spank his children? For correction. Breath is a big spanking. Yeah, it is. But it's to correct the whole course of a nation that was going down a spiral to just total destruction. So the Lord's mercy was to keep this remnant alive in Babylon for 70 years and then rebuild from there. Um, and really sometimes that's what the Lord does with us. And, and that's sometimes what a good parent will do with their child. You wanna break down the will. Uh, you don't wanna break down their spirit, but you do wanna break down the will. And whom, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And the Bible says, you know, the, the parent that doesn't chasten or spank his child hates his son. That's what the Bible says. Spanking is a Bible thing, and and don't don't be duped, mom and dad, by this current popular thing where, you know, spanking is something you shouldn't do. Uh, Most people do it wrong, and because of that, it tends to become very abusive. Um, And we've done whole teachings on spanking and how to spank children correctly and lovingly, and um, it's an important, important thing that our culture has lost, and we wonder why we have so much trouble. But the Lord models that here as he chastens his own people. Um, And that's what this chapter is about. Um, And what does the Lord use for a paddle? Uh, We'll see that here in this chapter as well. Verse one, how hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of his anger and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and hath not pitied and hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom of the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy and he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth round about. He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah. Mourning and lamentation. And he hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were a guard of a garden, he hath destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feast and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion, and hath despised the indignation of his anger, the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar, he hath abhorred his sanctuary, he hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces, they have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of the solemn feast. So we know that um, he destroys this place of worship, the temple, and all this stuff. And later it would be rebuilt by Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, these guys that come back, you know, 70 years later. But there's a couple things here. First of all, isn't it interesting? The Lord says in verse 5 the Lord was an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel and has swallowed up all their palaces. Now, if you're technical, who was it that swallowed up Israel and destroyed her palaces? The Babylonians. So if the Babylonians were the ones, then why is the Lord saying, I, the Lord did that? Well, as it turns out, the Babylonians were the paddle or the sword, as the Bible even says in places that the Lord used to correct his people, the Babylonians. Now, here's something that's gonna be hard for you to receive, but it's something that you should at least pray about and think about. Could it be that your biggest enemy in your life, think about who that is, who's your biggest enemy? Don't name them right now, Sorry. My boss, uh, my husband. <laughs> no, don't say that out loud. Um, who is your biggest enemy? And could it be that the Lord is using that enemy in your life just like he used the Babylonians with the Jews? Oh, thank the Lord it's not as severe as what we're reading about here in Lamentations, but. Sometimes the Lord can use something in your life that you think is just evil and from Satan, but maybe it's not. Could it be that something that seems, I mean, you know, when you, a Jew sitting there in Jerusalem, you see the Babylonians coming and killing everyone and crushing the city, the last thing on your mind probably is, oh, this is God doing this as a disciplinary judgment. Um, You think, no, this is the Babylonians crushing our city. When your boss get mad, gets mad at you at work, could it be that the Lord's trying to teach you something or show you something that's wrong in your own heart or your own attitude? I've found that the Lord oftentimes uses what we perceive as enemies to be that which the Lord is saying, I want you to learn and I want you to grow and I want you to, to, to be um, faithful uh, in following me. And I'm gonna use this person and, and until you learn the lesson, that boss is gonna continue to come down on you all the time. Um, learn the lesson, and then you'll see the Lord take the paddle away. That's just a freebie for you. You can take it or leave it, but taking it is oftentimes gonna shorten that time, uh, I think, uh, and that's something I'd be real interested in. And then in verse six, the Lord has violently taken away the tabernacle, his palaces, the assembly, the feasts, the Sabbaths, the altar, all those things are gone. Isn't it interesting that when we have all that stuff, we don't really appreciate all that stuff, but then when it's all gone, now they're weeping and saying, "Oh, the palaces and the tabernacle and the altars are gone." Now they're missing it. It's been interesting to see uh, in this last year when you know everything got locked down, how people are appreciating things. You know, um, it's been really fun. You know, when we opened the church up seven months ago, and. Uh, It was just so cool to see, it did my heart good to see people come back in and and, um, with real joy and a real appreciation. Like there were literally hundreds of you that came in and tears came down your cheeks as you walked back into church going, oh, how I've missed fellowship, how I've missed being in the congregation. And and I'm not sure all of us really even thought about it much pre-COVID we're like, yeah, we go to church, that's what we do. We all get together, we fight the traffic and we get in and find a parking space and hopefully find a chair and get our kids checked in. But, but when it became something you couldn't do for a while, when you came back, you're like, oh Lord, thank you for this, it's true. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, to gather. And there's a reason you tell us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as is the custom of some. And we start to get that. That's just one example. Um, I think I know a lot of you guys are, have a new appreciation for electricity in your house. <laughs> oh, as you turn on the light switch, the light switch, oh. <sighs> so nice. Before the ice storm, we're all like, yeah, whatever, that better be working. You know, that electricity, PGE, and all these guys are, P, you know, we gotta, but, um, but now it's like, oh, I'm so thankful we have warmth in our house. After a lot of us, 10, 12, 15 days, no, no electricity, that's a long haul for a lot of us. But you know, um, I wonder about this, the people now they're longing for that when before they're like, yeah, whatever, we'll have the temple and the feast, but we also are gonna do bail and all the other stuff. And I gotta say, especially to our online crowd, which we're so thankful for people who've done watch parties and this whole season of that, but there's coming a day where we're, we're gonna have to kind of acknowledge that there's still the gathering of the saints that needs to take place. And you say, well, Brett, we're doing that Um, at our house. We've got like 10 or, and when two or more are gathered, Lord's of the Mist." And that's all true, and we celebrate that, we really do. And I think watch parties are here to stay. Honestly, I do, I believe that. Um, Especially because when we lift all the number restrictions at Athey Creek, the whole staff, we're we're horrified of what's gonna happen. (laughs) We predict that first Sunday we do that, it's gonna be mayhem. Because right now, you know, the 10 o'clock service sells out in like six seconds. Um, it really does. And all the services sell, except for the 12 o'clock. The 12 o'clock, now we have five services on, on the weekend. Uh, the 12 o'clock, uh, we only had like, I'm not gonna tell you the numbers because Kate Brown watches uh, this, I think, once in a while. But we have a few people here. Um, but, uh, but man, that 12 o'clock's got room uh, in the end. And we went back to live, by the way, live 12 o'clock. We tried it for a couple of weeks. It didn't feel right. Um, doing the video service. But, but um, the thing is about that is, um, we, you know, Athey Creek, the leadership here, we're praying f- uh, f- fervently, feverishly. Uh, how are we gonna accommodate all the people who just wanna be in church? Because we see that as still important. There's some churches and pastors that say, we're not gonna meet until 2022. Like that's, that's what some pa- big churches are saying that. Some pastors said, yeah, the church gathering is a thing of the past. Like that was the narrative of some pastors in America. Uh, no, that's not, that's not biblical, that's not sound. You gotta gather with the saints. And here's what's even more kind of important. And this is the kind of stuff we pray about as leadership and stuff. Um, what's a real church? What quantifies a real church? People wonder about that. Well, we just like to have church in our home. And well, do you have elders and pastors and deacons? Because a real church has those things according to the Bible. If you don't have that, you're not really a real church. Well, Brad, well, what do we do? Well, that's what we're praying about. And you know, maybe the Lord wants us to be creative with watch parties and, and get some elders within those watch party groups and have them be, like we're, we are being creative. So eighth Creek, we've tried to take it from all approaches. We We've opened our building, but we still have as strong of an online presence as we know how to do because we see the online, uh, methods, that's something that people just, That's it, what we can do now. Some people, that's all they got. Um, our online church has grown exponentially in the past year. Um, you know, Some of these prophecy updates, um, when you go with YouTube and our, uh, all the different platforms, our website and all, we got like a half a million views on our prophecy updates. Like that's amazing to me, how many people are, are taking in the word from, from Athe. But what happens when we wanna get everybody back in the building? That's what we don't really know. <laughs> uh, we're praying about you know building finally phase two. If you don't know, if you're new here, this is just phase one of this building. And uh, the way this building was built is you see the two pads out there on the backside, that's, that's the children's wing that's not there. So we built this shell, threw up some walls here and made children's classrooms uh, temporarily. And then the goal is someday to build the children's wing over on that overside, and then take all these walls out. And then that makes this sanctuary quite a bit bigger. Um, and, uh, and the parking lot and everything, we've got plans and it's already approved by the county. It's just, uh, it's always been kind of out of reach, uh, just seemingly financially, but that's something we're praying about. And would you guys join us in praying about that? Because we do feel that it's important for people to gather together. Some people say, what about these giant churches and mega churches? I'm with you, I get it why people don't like mega churches. Don't come here then. (laughs) There's a lot of great churches. If you're complaining about that, great. I can recommend some really awesome small churches. And and I think small churches are sometimes better in some ways. Big churches are fun because there's things you can do and resources that we have that we get to do around the world and stuff. The reach is a little different. It's, it's kind of cool. I see strengths in both the small church and the big church. I really do. I never wanted a big church. Thanks a lot, you guys. <laughs> it's, all your, it's all your fault. Um, I, really, I really didn't. Uh, I wanted a, me, a nice medium sized, you know, 500 to 1,000 people, 1,000, no more. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't tell you guys this, but it's true. This is a true story. I told my daughter years ago, Casey, um, I said, you know, because she said, Dad, what are you going to do if you have to go to four services? Because uh, we were doing three services back in the school, back in the day, years ago. And I said, four services? Ah, I could do four services. What if you have to go to five services? And then, this is horrible. I, I was joking, and Casey knew it. But I said, Casey, if that happens, you know, here she is, like, tutor hire. I said, just take me out in a field and shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I told her. <laughs> now, I forgot that I told her that. And so... <laughs> So uh, a few Sundays ago, I announced, uh, we're going to do our fifth service, and, I, and, then now, and then the last week I started teaching that fifth service, and uh, I got home, and Casey said, you know, Dad, um, should I go start cleaning the gun? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, um, so it was kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. But, um, but in my defense, uh, that's not on one day uh, yet. Um, uh, uh, we do that Saturday and Sunday and all that. But, um, but it, is, it is fun to watch what the Lord's doing, but we're praying about what the Lord would have us do. Why? Because we are very committed to people not forsaking the assembling of themselves together, even in the larger group. Acts chapter two says they continued steadfastly, apostles doctrine, breaking of bread, prayer fellowship. But it said they did it in the temple daily and also from house to house. The temple was the one where there were thousands of people. That's the early church. They did that, thousands of people. And remember one of those services, Peter preached and 3000 people were saved in one service. So that was a, that was a mega church back then. <laughs> the house to house thing also needs to happen where people have smaller groups of friends and that's Acts two forty two as well, that whole section of Acts. And we're committed to both of those. So keep that in prayer. We don't wanna take for granted the things that we have and what we're called to do. Um, I fear that the world is getting comfortable with not going to church anymore. That's, that's what I am a, a little concerned about. We don't have that problem here at Athey, uh, but I am concerned about that elsewhere. People are just like, yeah, church is kind of a thing of the past. That's not gonna be healthy. Oh boy, verse eight, we gotta hurry. The Lord hath pur- uh, purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He hath stretched out a line. He hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made... The rampart and the wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He hath destroyed her broke and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The Virgin of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Um, Pretty gruesome graphic language. Your liver being poured out upon the ground. That's a problem. Uh, You kind of need that. Um, uh, Because the children and the sucklings swoon in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, Where's the corn and the wine when they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out unto their mother's bosom? What thing shall I take to witness for thee? What uh, thing shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea who can heal thee. Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem saying, is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash their teeth and say, We have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day that we looked for. We have found, we have seen it. So um, the world has been looking to mess with Jerusalem for years, and they still do. They still say this stuff about Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem has since been rebuilt and has become powerful. There's there's sort of an echo through history that's foreshadowing future worldviews on Jerusalem as well. Verse 17, the Lord hath done that which he hath devised. He hath fulfilled his word that he had committed. In the days of old, he hath thrown down. He hath not pitied. He hath caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He hath set up the horn of thine adversary. Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. Isn't it interesting here that the Lord talks about the walls that were fallen, but let the walls of Jerusalem weep like tears running down the wall. And that reminds me, and that's why I used on Sunday that image of the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, um, because I see a correlation between that imagery of the Wailing Wall of Jerusalem that's there today, Jews mourning there by the Western Wall. And they mourn for the same reason that these guys were mourning. That the Temple Mount is trodden down, the temple does not exist. Um, They can't even go up on their Temple Mount, um, you know. It's really, really something to see today. Um, If you haven't seen the Western Wall, it's it's one of those places on the earth that when you get there, you sense a spiritual um, tension that's hard to describe, that's like no other, uh, but it's very real. The wall is sort of crying there, if you would. So let their wall cry, you know, let tears run down. Arise, verse 19, cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands toward him, for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom thou hast done this. Shall the women eat their fruit and the children of of a span long? Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Um, Now we know verse 20, and this is horrific, but um, in the last siege of Jerusalem, Um, the Bible was right and even predicted this before it happened, that the women would be eating their children, cannibalism, because they were all starving. And it's just this horrible place that uh, Jerusalem was in. It's like the worst thing that you can think of in humanity that could ever happen. But that was predicted and that's what actually happened. Verse 21, the young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men were fallen by the sword. Thou hast slain them in the day of thine anger. Thou hast killed and not pitied. Thou hast called as in a solemn solemn day my terrors round about, so that in the day of the Lord's anger none escaped nor remained. Those that I have swaddled and brought up hath mine enemy consumed. Nice, depressing place to finish off our. uh, But before we go, like I said, and give me just a few more minutes if you would, because there's something I want to show you, and that is this. The Lord lovingly, compassionately, vehemently tried to warn the children of Israel that all of this stuff would happen. Everything from um, you know, the women eating their children to their walls being crushed, to the temple not existing, to you know, everybody dying on the hills. Like the Lord for centuries, for centuries warned the Jews. Sometimes I wonder if the century thing was the problem. It's almost like the longer the Lord warned people, the more they're like, "Ah, oh, he told us that 500 years ago, whatever." But I worry that today, when the Bible talks about the tribulation period and the wrath that's to come, we've been hearing that for centuries. When did the Lord first warn the children of Israel? There, there's actually an amazing chapter, um, and we don't have time to do this fully, but it's an amazing chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, Now, uh, if you want, good luck with this, but I'm gonna list some verses here. um, And I'll show you its counterpart in Deuteronomy 28. And the reason I wanna do this is I wanna show you that almost all the things we read about in in Lamentations are things that when God was giving Moses the law, God said, now, if you do this, then that will happen. If you do the other, then that will happen. the Lord, it's all these if-then statements. So um, jot down in your notes, if you want to do this quickly, um, Lamentations 1.3. And the corresponding sp- scripture is Deuteronomy 28.65. Deuteronomy 28.65 says, And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot find rest. But the Lord shall give you a trembling heart, th- uh, failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. This is the Lord way back in Deuteronomy, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier saying, when you get in the promised land, when you get kings, don't follow the evil things of pagan gods and deities because you'll you're, you know, you'll, you'll be um, uh, finding no ease and the sole of your foot will have no rest. And like Lamentations 3, it says, you will find no rest. All your persecutors have overtuk- overtaken you. See, there's a corresponding Lamentation that goes with the Deuteronomy. Let me give you other ones. Uh, verse five, talking about um, you know her adversaries, the Lord afflicting them, and her children going into captivity. The corresponding is two things: Deuteronomy twenty-eight thirty-two. Uh, let me just read that to you. Twenty-eight thirty-two. It says, "Thy sons and thy daughters will be given to another people." and then I shall look and fail with longing for them all the day. In other words, your kids are gonna be taken into captivity. Not only Deuteronomy um, 28, 32, but also uh, verse 44, also corresponds with verse five. Lamentations 1, 5 is 28, 44. He shall not lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He that shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. The Lord's saying there's gonna be people leading you and governing you. Um, look at verse six. The corresponding verse is Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and you'll be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. This is the Lord hundreds of years earlier saying, don't do this stuff. That's chapter um, chapter one of Lamentations verse six that corresponds with Deuteronomy 28, 25. Man, I could go on and on. Uh, Let's fast forward to verse 18 of chapter one. The Lord is righteous, uh, um, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Um, uh, I pray you all my people behold my sorrow, my virgins, my young men will go into captivity. Deuteronomy 28, 41 says really the same thing. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they will go in to captivity. This is the Lord lovingly, carefully warning the people, this is what's gonna happen to you if you do this, but they didn't believe. Man, we can go on. Look at chapter two of Lamentations, verse nine. The corresponding verse with two, nine is Deuteronomy 28, 36. It says, the Lord shall bring thee, uh, and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation neither which thou or thy fathers have known. And there shall, they shall serve other gods of wood and stone." That happened, and that's what it says um, there in verse nine. Her gates are sunk into the ground, broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles, and the law is no more. The prophets also have had no vision. See, corresponding ser- scripture, and I could just go on and on. Verse 15 is Deuteronomy twenty-eight thirty-seven. Chapter two, verse 20 is Deuteronomy 28, verse 53. Uh, chapter two, verse 21 here in Lamentations is Deuteronomy 28, 50. Um, you know, this whole thing about women eating their children, that's, that's Deuteronomy uh, 28, 53. Like all of these things were predicted very much in detail. Okay, Brett, what's the big deal? The big deal is twofold, one, These people didn't believe the Lord because maybe it was centuries. They heard this for centuries and they said, yeah, whatever. Even when Jeremiah came on the scene and tried to warn them in the immediate time, for some reason, the people just said, yeah, whatever. I I worry about our culture and especially even sometimes the church, we get calloused because, well, we've been hearing about the second coming of Christ for hundreds of years Brett, you've been talking about the rapture of the church for 25 years. And to me, 25 years, that's nothing. For a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years with the Lord is as a day. Do you realize what 25 years is? A blip on the screen, a microsecond. And, and yet, I, I worry that. Christians and worldlings alike, we've heard these things for centuries, so somehow we think they're not gonna happen. The rapture of the church, the tribulation period, the time of God's wrath being poured out upon our Christ-rejecting sinful world. But I have to tell you, the tribulation period's coming and it's gonna be worse than the time of Jeremiah. And it's gonna be global. So that's the first thing. The second thing is because of that, you and I should be the people who are speaking the truth about these things. I would rather be a Jeremiah in Jeremiah-like days who's just proclaiming the truth in the middle of the, the, the you know, people that are criticized, oh, doom and gloom and talking about wrath and judgment. We're just gonna talk about hope and victory and, and uh, wealth and happiness and our checkbook and happy marriages and all the things that are good. All those things are good and we do talk about them, but, we're, but, but the church needs to hear about the other two. So you need to help with that. Don't be like the false prophets. There were hundreds of those during the time of Jeremiah. Oh, it's all gonna be great. But we need to be able to speak the truth and we've got plenty of good things to say. So the bad is something we preach, but we also get to say, but God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son. That if you give your heart to Christ and you get your sins forgiven, and if you become saved, then you are not appointed to that wrath that's coming. Uh, that's what we did last Sunday. That's what I hopefully do every single Sunday is present the gospel. And even when we hear the bad news, we can always end with the good. Amen? Amen. 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 Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take heart, Lord, in these scriptures. We, we wanna learn from this history. Um, we don't wanna just blow off what Jeremiah is saying here in these lamentations. Um, it seems like these lessons were learned too late for Israel on that day but may we learn from the lessons of lamentations today and that we would be saved and also that we would lead others to know the saving grace of the cross. Um, Lord, that we'd be all about your love for a sinful world that you gave your only begotten son. Lord, bless these, your people who've carved out time to study depressing chapters and lamentations, but we pray that they would do their work on our hearts tonight in Jesus' name, amen.